celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, in Ronan, Montana. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, my name is Brian Chilton, joined alongside by the the cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo, bringing you a special edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast on a special night. Uh, we are coming to you on Wednesday night. Normally and typically, I wouldn't be able to podcast on Wednesday night, but we've actually moved our Wednesday night Bible study to Thursday. Thursday night this week because we have a special Thursday night service uh, called a Tenebrae service. It's a uh, uh, Tenebrae is Latin for shadows, and uh, it's a, it's one of the most powerful services I've ever been part of. And so, uh, if you're in the Mount Airy, North Carolina area, we do encourage you to stop by and join us at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church across the road from Northern Hospital. And we're going to have a great time. It should start uh, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. So if you are in the area, we we would encourage you to come and join us. Uh, But we've got a lot of things to discuss tonight. So you won't see a podcast tomorrow night. uh, But uh, we are here on this special Holy Week. We're going to have uh, we're going to be we're leading up to Good Friday this Friday and Easter Sunday, or Resurrection Sunday this Sunday, and looking forward to that. We'll have more on Holy Week coming up here in just a few short moments, but I, I do want to um, make a couple of brief announcements as we get started. Number one, first and foremost, the Bellator Christie team is very proud to announce that two of our members uh, defended their dissertations today, and that is uh, Michelle Johnson, who is our executive vice president and managing editor, uh, a good friend of, with, of Bellator Christie. She and Curtis started with Bellator Christie about the same time. Curtis was about a month or two before Michelle joined on. But both uh, both of them have been just invaluable to uh, the ministry, and we're so thankful for both of them. Uh, Michelle earned her theology, a PhD in theology and apologetics at Liberty, uh, and like myself, she minored in church history. And so we're, we're very proud of her. She did an excellent job. And we're also very proud of Deanna Huff. Deanna Huff is our Associate Vice President of uh, Spiritual Growth and Outreach. She serves uh, in a, on a team of four, uh, four publishers at Bellator Christie. And so we're very proud of her. She did a wonderful job. In fact, one of her, um, one of her dissertation readers, uh, committee readers, is a member of Bellator Christie, and that is Dan- Dr. Daniel Sloan. And so uh, we've got. Uh, so that was a that was a good combination. There actually, they both joined on after they already had the committee formed. So we can't we can't say anything of the otherwise. But. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But uh, very proud of Deanna and Michelle. Like myself, they've been they've been working on this program for a very long time. In fact, I believe, if I'm not greatly mistaken, that Deanna and uh, Michelle and I all started at the same time. Fun fact: Michelle, unless I'm greatly mistaken, Michelle and I, our first class together. Uh, was at the same time. It was on research methods, I believe. We took the the same class together, and in fact, we were a lot of our first classes we had together. Uh, we were in the same class. Uh, so I, let me rephrase it. A lot of the first classes we took, uh, we were there together. And so Michelle has uh, been a good friend. Interestingly, though, her husband is Dr. Steve Johnson. Uh, a famed dentist in the Mankato, Minnesota area. So now the Johnson family has a doctor, doctor, Dr. Steve and Dr. Michelle Johnson. So we're excited for them. We're excited for Deanna. And uh, awesome. so we're going to have a Bellator Christie is going to be well represented at the uh, graduation coming up this May. And so we're excited about that. Uh, also, big news to share with you as well. I uh, turned in the index portion of my book, uh, Conversations About Heaven, and I heard today from the publisher that we're about 30 days out 
from the release of Conversations About Heaven, which should put this somewhere around May 5th. May 5th is the day we're looking for. Maybe actually a little earlier than that. Uh, But coming up here in the next week or so, we should have a cover uh, to release uh, to you, uh, to show you. And and we'll have that, of course, on uh, the social media apps Bellator Christie and uh, keep you up to date. So, but it does look like now, uh, it does indeed look like that conversations about heaven will release before season six has concluded. So uh, it'll be available to you on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere the books are found. And we're going to look to uh, build a page at Bellator Christie to have the uh, resources from our team members, not only from myself. Uh, but also for other members of our team who have written books. So we hope to have that available up on the Bellator Christie site uh, coming up very soon. Uh, So a lot to discuss, a lot of exciting news to share with you as we get started. Uh, Now we're going to turn it over to the Cowboy Apologist himself, Mr. Curtis Evelo. Curtis, how you doing, my friend? Good. Yeah, boy, just... uh starting on our on our cabin season this year so we're we're uh what do we got like uh 13 12 13 on the ground right now and heading towards uh i think what 80 more 80 some more cows to go so wow we should be yep rolling pretty good so yeah it's been one of those but it's crazy um the the weather forecast is is uh pretty calm right now and it's been pretty decent but the wind has just been horrible it's like what in the world is going on with this wind but i tell you my uncle over in in uh, south dakota um he had a picture on facebook um a video on facebook of uh, they got another 11 inches of snow um in everdeen and uh the wind picked up and and everything that he had um uh, trenched out and snow blowing, snow blowing out and moved away is all blown back in with snow. So I'll have to show you a video of that after well, we're done here. I te- it's crazy. I tell you, Curtis, we had some a crazy wind coming up this past weekend. I mean, 50, 60 mile an hour gusts to the point that it knocked our power out for 24 hours. Uh <laughs> I had to uh, because we it, Saturday nights when it knocked it out. So to get ready for church, you know, I, I took a, a well, I couldn't take a shower, but uh, I did. We did have some water uh, saved, and so I had to do it the old timey style put <laughs> put it in the sink and yeah. wash my hair in the sink and by candlelight. So yeah. we were roughing yeah. it out, rough roughing it, roughing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one good thing about like uh, um, having the wood stove uh, that we do have. You know, um, if we need to heat up water, well, we can heat it up pretty quickly. You know, so we, you know, we do have that. So that's a benefit. Absolutely. Yep. So this week is a pretty special week, um, but let's let's uh, take a minute here, Brian. And before we get before we get into the design argument and and going in through all that. Because it's Holy Week, we should talk a little bit about the time, uh, the timelines, and th- discussing the events that Jesus, um, Jesus's last week on on the face of this earth. And you think about it, we had a men's meeting this last weekend, and this question came up, almost identical, but to the effect of, if you knew you had seven days left. To change the world, what would you do? Mm. Powerful. So, anyway, let's get into that. Let's let's talk about the last uh, last events here. Well, absolutely. And so, um, you know, look, looking at uh, the 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 events of Jesus's, you know, um, well, really, I guess you'd say the uh, starting from from Palm Sunday. Uh, move, moving onward, you know, of course, Palm Sunday was the day uh, that Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem, uh, He riding on the donkey. This was a, in a fulfillment of a prophecy given in Zechariah, and uh, where it was talking about how uh, the, uh, the uh, 
the Messiah, your king, will come to you riding on a donkey, riding on a colt, a colt of a donkey. And so this would have happened in um, this would have happened in um, on the, that Sunday beforehand. And then you have events that happen uh, moving forward. You have like Jesus clearing the temple. Um, you have this taking place early in the week. Uh, I was looking. I thought I had a timeline set up here uh, that went to, uh, that, that talked about uh, each each specific day. Uh, and so I was looking for that while I was going through um, through this. But anyhow, on, on Palm Sunday, he's entering in Jerusalem. You have this taking place. Uh, you know, it's like it's like with anything else. If you if I'm not looking for it, it would pop up immediately. But now that I'm looking for it, you know, yeah. it doesn't want to. <laughs> Isn't that it'll, exactly? It'll show up after we're done. That's exactly what'll happen. Uh, but uh, here, well, here's something we, you know, we look at. Uh, sun, you know, Sunday also you see the fig tree is cursed. Uh, you see conspiracies taking place early in the week. Uh, in, on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, you you probably even have. Uh, some scholars believe you may even have the story of uh, Lazarus, his resurrection, maybe even happening that Sunday sometime around the, the early in the in the last week because they were trying to hush you know this this miracle up because it was so spectacular, so phenomenal. Uh, so you have this con- conspiracies happening, taking place. Uh, now, now I've seen some things going online about pe- some people trying to say that the crucifixion happened on Thursday. There's really no good solid evidence to suggest that. I'm not saying that there can't be a case made for that, uh, but I think it's taken too literally that whole idea of three days and three nights in the tomb. Uh, I think in the Jewish in the Jewish understanding, even a part of a day was counted as a day, and so there's good solid evidence for believing that Jesus died on April third, thirty three A.D., which would be a Friday, and that the first Easter would be or first Resurrection Sunday would be April fifth of thirty three A.D., which today, by the way. Is today on our calendar uh, today? I mean, even though it's not Easter Sunday, today is April fifth. So, uh, technically speaking, if it was the year thirty-three A.D., this would have been the day that Jesus raised from the dead. How cool is that? Uh, but anyhow, you, you have this happening Wednesday. You have a lot of things going on, a lot of messages being brought in the temple. Thursday, uh, you have a time where Jesus is spending a lot of time with the disciples. There that evening, right around this time, they would have been in the upper room on that Thursday night, and this is why, in many circles and in many traditions, Thursday is called Monday Thursday, which means a sorrowful Thursday. This is the time when they celebrate the Last Supper together, and there's even, I believe, if if I'm not mistaken, seven cups that are shared. I believe that's right, seven cups that are shared. And each cup has a meaning to it. This would have been a Passover Seder that they would have shared together. And so they would have had the bread. They would have had the wine. They would have other things. They're a part of this Passover Seder. And then that evening, uh, then Jesus would have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have prayed in the garden Thursday evening and um, praying that the Father remove this cup if it be his will. And... um, but the interesting thing about this, and I know this is going a little lengthy, but I think being Holy Week, just give us a few moments because this is an important reflection. The thing about the Garden of Gethsemane is that it would have been easy, it would have been easy for Jesus to escape in the darkness, even while seeing the soldiers coming across the ravine, coming down mm-hmm. out of Jerusalem, he could have easily snuck in the darkness and uh, in the shadows mm-hmm. of the darkness and escaped and avoided the cross. But he, even seeing the light from the torches coming up, he uh, went through went through everything he did. And so uh, he was arrested Thursday night. Friday morning, uh, he would have been tried very early in the morning. And this was a monkey court. Understand, this was a monkey court. Not everyone in the Sanhedrin was there. Only those who would have supported the verdict of condemning Jesus would have been there. This was a monkey court. There were even several Jewish laws that were broken by the people who pushed this thing through. Uh, there, there were several things that were not done according to the law, uh, but this was a means of trying to get rid of a problem, according to the Sadducees. And by the way, the Sadducees, 
Now, here's another interesting historical tidbit. The Sadducees would have been the ones who have would have really pushed the issue more than the Pharisees would have. Uh, because even though there were more Pharisees in the land than Sadducees, Sadducees were more of the political group, and they can they they held the purse strings and they held the power. So it would have been even more the Sadducees' efforts than the Pharisees. Even all that being said, the trial of Jesus would have happened very early that morning, been condemned probably around six o'clock, would have been scourged probably somewhere around eight o'clock, and the Gospels tell us that he was crucified at nine a.m. On Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. Now, some people believe that it's 30, um, and we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, he would have been crucified that Friday at three at 9 a.m. Darkness would have covered the region at 12 noon, and at 3 p.m. he gave up the ghost. Uh, and it must be remembered that he was beaten very badly, was up all night, and um, there's other things we can mention about this. You know, he, he fell with a cross. Some people believe that he even suffered heart damage uh, whenever he fell with a cross and Simon of Cyrene had to help him up. That could have even have caused a traumatic injury to his heart uh, even then. A lot of other issues going on. But at 3 p.m., he gave up the ghost, and um, and then he would have been buried. Uh, 6, 6 p.m. would have started uh, the, uh, the Shabbat. That uh, that evening, or or the uh, or or uh, or the Sabbath day, so they had to get it done before six p.m. So I'm thinking they probably hustled to get him in the tomb by five p.m., sealed it up. Uh, of course, Pilate eventually had the seal of Rome placed on the tomb so that no one could uh, open it. And so then, of course, Easter Sunday, early in the morning, Jesus rose from the dead. So kind of give you a timeline, kind of an event. And there's a lot there. We, we skimmed through a lot of information there, but there's some very important information. Maybe next year in Holy Week, maybe we can take just a podcast just to, to talk even more detail about these issues because there's a lot going on uh, on that in that last week, a lot taking place. Yeah. Yeah, powerful stuff. I mean, uh, you said when he fell with the with the cross beam on him. There's those that say that he could have even um, ha- suffered a concussion at that moment. Yeah, you know, for would have been like being hit by a car. You know, the, oh yeah, the, the fall that would have happened. Well, and you got to um, consider just, too that the cross beam would have weighed 115 pounds at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's just so much that's that's part of that 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 really is amazing to me um just so many different things uh, come up that that really in my head that just uh you know even the passover the all all of the events the things going on um all really just ramped up and you think about it through the timeline of his triumphal entry coming in he was he was continually uh ramping up his um his description of who he is and 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 ramping up um the the what was going to happen to him and he was really ramping up his calling his disciples up to him and calling him out and saying hey look at this this is what's going to happen you know how many times were they told you know yeah absolutely so powerful stuff. So, the design argument. This is probably, if I had to pick one, um, it would be my favorite. This is probably my favorite because it's like, well, duh. <laughs> it's just, I love it. And your contribution in the so book much. coming up is going to be on this issue. To it. <laughs> what are you talking about? Talking about the design and creation. <laughs> <laughs> quiet <laughs> yeah no i this is probably one of the just one of the one of the things that just i i love discussing and 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 talking about because there's so much that's in it there's nothing that is unintentional about what we see today in amongst all of our lives and what we do Nothing is here by happenstance. Nothing mm. is here by a mistake. 
um, it's just it, it's mind blowing when you get into it. So absolutely, I really want to get I want to dig into this. So let's let's go with this one. What is the design argument for God's existence then? So the design argument consists of several different arguments from several different people that speaks to the existence of certain things in the universe designed in to such a degree that they have to be in such a way to allow life to exist if they were changed in any degree to any degree uh, then life would be impossible and it, it, it's it's such a powerful argument because it's found throughout creation. Now, there are objections given to the design argument, but I think they're all very weak, to be honest. At least the ones I've seen are very weak. In fact, it's, there's such power to the design argument that even um, Richard Dawkins, a famed atheist, when he was uh, interviewed by Ben, ben Stein uh, on a movie called Expelled, he even fully admitted that the universe looked designed, designed, and, but uh, his 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 contention was not a, about the universe being designed, but it was about God doing it. He believed in uh, the whole issue of what's called transpermia, that uh, someone who was evolved came by and, and seeded life on Earth. Uh, and that was his answer as to why there was design in, in the in the creation, or at least in biology, uh, because he believed that it was designed. But his problem was that he didn't think that God did it. He thought that some alien did it instead. So anyhow, the design argument looks at uh, the different evidences of design and creation and says, due to all of the exquisite design of biology uh, and the design of um, you know the human DNA uh, information argument even fits in with the design argument to a degree and even especially looking at the cosmological constants I mean you have four fundamental uh, four fundamental forces in the universe you have a strong nuclear force which uh, talks about the binding of ele- of molecules together if it was any stronger then everything would have been so bound that uh, you really couldn't have anything necessary for life to exist. But if they were any looser, then the DNA strands couldn't couldn't uh, entwine amongst themselves as they do. Uh, the the weak nuclear force is looking at um, uh, electro electromagnetic uh, forces. You know, not not really necessarily electromagnetic forces, but really the forces that bind themselves together, like galaxies, the spinning of galaxies, and things of that nature. Um, then you have the electromagnetic uh, force. Uh, of course, you know electricity. If you've worked in electricity, you know electricity and magnetism go hand in hand. Electricity produces magnetism. Magnetism uh, generates electricity. They go hand in hand. That's like a hand in glove. Uh, but if they were any stronger, uh, then life wouldn't be possible. If they were any weaker, then we couldn't even have the electrical rhythms that uh, that power our bodies and even uh, function our heart. Uh, you look at gravity. If gravity was any stronger in the universe, then uh, nothing beyond the scope of a, of a bacteria, uh, a bacterium would exist. But then if it was any weaker, then you'd have trees flying off uh, in, into, uh, or you wouldn't even have this, the galaxies <laughs> developing in, the, in even the spinning of the earth. If the spinning of the earth was any faster then, uh, then you'd only have small, minute amoebas existing. But if it was weaker, you'd have trees flying off, skyscrapers flying off into space. I mean, even it comes down to, and we'll get into this in a little more detail in a few moments, but it even comes down to even the life cycle of the sun. Uh, Hugh Ross has even argued that we're in a perfect position in the history of the sun because if we were, if we were about any earlier, it would be, everything would be too cold. If we were about to to later in the in the life of the sun, everything would be too hot. That's why these issues are called often called the Goldilocks zone, uh, because everything is kind of like the uh, whole story of the three bears, Goldilocks and three bears. Uh, you know, the porridge was too hot or it was too cold, but it was you're looking for it to be just right. And that's essentially what the Goldilocks zone is all about. Uh, you've got to have certain conditions just right for life. 
and there are just so many cosmological constants, so, so many aspects of design in the universe that the whole notion that this came by chance is just absurd. Yeah, you go to the you you. I love it how how we have we have similar brains but different brains all in one. You go to the big. You go to the to the cosmos to the. To all of the big things that you see out there, and I, my mind instantly goes to the small, the minute, <laughs> the, the little things, the the cellular things that are inside our bodies that keep us running and and processing things, you know, processing oxygen, processing the food we ate, and and the things that it just it, those little things just are incredible. I mean. For example, we had a um, we had an outbreak years ago uh, in our herd, in our cow herd, with a uh, micro uh, a microbe, a little microcellular garbage that just it it just caused havoc through the whole herd. It caused them to get sick. Um, they drank water out of this one uh, stream. And it it caused everything to get sick, and we had to fight that or battle back with certain minerals and and uh, and treatments and things, and and that you couldn't see it. It it was in the water. It even if you picked it up and held it in your hand or put it in a glass, you wouldn't see that little minute thing. Um, and that that's the stuff that just. Uh, it just blows me away. Mm. The, the things that you... And we wouldn't be able to have medicine today. Yeah. We wouldn't be able to have medicine if it wasn't for the constants of certain microbes and certain things that, that we can uh, modify and make into the medicines that we use today in our normal... I mean, you go to the go to the drugstore or go to Walmart and go to the shelf, that is so taken for granted that that there is something there that can take care of an issue that we have. Absolutely. Talk about Crazy. looking at big things, I guess I should have been born in Texas. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we got we got um, William Paley's watchmaker analogy. Can you give us a little bit on that? Well, you know, here I'm. I'm wearing. I'm an old. I'm old school. In many ways, I'm old school. I'm still wearing a you. Casio watch. I don't have a smart wait, watch. Wait, that's not old school. That's digital. That's digital, bro. Well, maybe I'm not completely old school, but I'm. <laughs> I'm Gen X old school. I'll put that. <laughs> uh, you have you ever watched that movie, Planes, were, Trains, and Automobiles? What were, what were the watches that everybody used to want and have? What were those? Is it Rolex? No, 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 no. The the fancy watches that are the the fun colored watches that everybody had in high school and stuff. Oh, I don't remember. I'm just thinking of that movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, where John Candy's character is trying to get into the hotel, and he uh, says, "I have a Casio, <laughs> a Casio." <laughs> There's so much in that movie that I could quote, but it's not suitable for on air. You're probably right. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, you said that movie, and everything come flooding back. <laughs> now we're all gonna have to. Everybody go have to watch. We we'll have to watch planes, trains, and automobiles, except for one scene where Steve Martin loses it. You know, it's really a pretty clean movie. Yes, it is. It is. Hilarious, but uh, that oh, uh, that that tirade uh, makes up for the rest. But anyhow, <laughs> but anyhow, William Paley, I, I br we bring up the Casio watch, the watch because uh, Paley argues he makes his argument from the watch. He said if you were going out walking on the beach and you found a watch uh, that was wound up, it was working perfectly, you saw all the gears in there you would automatically know that it was designed, that it had a designer. Mm -hmm. So Paley, who lived from 14, uh, excuse me, 1743 to 1805, uh, gave the following argument. Geisler summarizes it as follows. 
One, all designs imply a, desi imply a designer. Two, there is a great design in the universe. Three, therefore, there must have been a great designer of the universe. And it stands to reason. If uh, And this kind of really goes back to the illustration my dad often used. I remember him saying this while we grew up. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, and flies like a duck, chances are highly likely that it's a duck. So... Paley would say something very similar. If it looks designed, it has all the characteristics of designed of being designed, then chances are highly likely that it was designed. And so just as you see a watch and, and it has all the implications of design in it, then it only stands to reason to argue that there's a designer. And so it goes mm -hmm. on to say the greater the design, the greater the designer. Uh, so if that, yeah. this illustration is given, I think, um, I'm not sure if Haley, if Haley uses this. I think this is more Geisler. Geisler uses the illustration of a thousand monkeys sitting at typewriters for millions of years would never produce Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Shakespeare did it on the first try. <laughs> so in other words, the more... I forgot, about, I forgot that that's what Geisler said. <laughs> that quote one time before um yeah my goodness so, so he goes on to say the greater the the uh, the more complex the design the design the greater the intelligent require intelligence required to produce it so you think about all the intricates intricacies of the human body of uh, the dna you think of all of the intricacies of of uh, the natural world uh bio biology and uh meteorology and and um cosmology, astrology, astronomy, and everything else, not astrology, astronomy, and everything else included in the universe, uh, just think how incredibly intelligent the designer of this universe must be. So that's kind of Paley's argument in a nutshell. That's right. And the, and the watch, I had, to, I, had to, I had to text my wife. I was like, I know I remember that name. In high school, I don't know if you remember that. Well, what was that? Uh, where it, people could switch swatches. S W A T. Swatches. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yep. yep. Where people could switch out the bands, different colors and different <laughs> things, and <laughs> yeah, dating myself here. And, well, well, me too. I remember them. <laughs> yeah. 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 So <clears throat> the. the I also heard uh, Frank Turek say one time, if you walked by um, a a bunch of uh, spilled over alphabet soup, and and uh, and it said um, uh, "mom" or it said uh, "clean up the mess, mom." You wouldn't look at that and be like, "Wow, that was crazy how it just dumped out and and spelled that." You would be even as rudimentary as it is. You would know that it was given or done or put together by an intelligent mind, by some sort of mind that actually put those things together. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so let's see. So the the irreducible complexity, um, the, and this this is one that I love is how does it fit within the design argument that we've already established? Let me let me find it here. Uh, this a lot of irreducible complexity uh, comes from uh, Michael Behe uh, or Behe. Um, and he goes on to say that uh, in his excellent book, Darwin's Black Box, provides from the nature of a living cell strong evidence that it could yeah. not have originated by anything but intelligent design. Irreducible complexity is talking about certain things, certain aspects that just could not have come about by random mutations and random chance. Things that are right. so so intricately designed that they show evidence of a designer. So like a, the fla the flagellum of, uh, I think it was a bacteria if I'm not mistaken, the little tail. Stephen Meyer. Yeah, he, Stephen Meyer talks about this. Uh, and and Behe, in, uh, in his uh, Darwin's Black Box, um, 
he said that the cell represents uh, irreducible complexity and it cannot be accounted for by the incremental changes called for by evolution. Um, and he even goes on to say, even Charles Darwin admitted, if, we, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. That comes from Darwin himself. So Darwin says that if there are things out there that have irreducible complexity, there are some there are problems with his theory of evolution. Um, and but in Dawkins, uh, Dawkins, Stephen Dawkins, I'm excuse me, Richard Dawkins, even says that evolution is very possibly not an actual fact, always gradual, but it must be gradual when it is being used to explain the coming into existence of complicated, apparently designed objects like eyes. So he even admits that eyes look very designed. For if it is not gradual in these cases, it ceases to have any explanatory power at all. Without gradualness in these cases, we are back to a miracle, which is a synonym for the total absence of naturalistic explanation. That comes from Dawkins. So if there are things that have irreducible complexity, this poses a great problem for naturalistic evolution. Um, Behe provides numerous examples of irreducible complex uh, things that cannot evolve in small steps. He goes on to conclude in his book Darwin's Black Box on page 187, No one at Harvard University, no one at the National Institutes of Health, no member of the National Academy of Sciences, no Nobel Prize winner, no one at all can give a detailed account of how the cilium or vision or blood clotting, or any complex biochemical process might have developed in a Darwinian fashion, but we're here, all these things got here some, somehow, if not in a Darwinian fashion, then, then how? And then other examples of irreducible complexity abound, including DNA reduplication, electron transport, telomere synthesis, photosynthesis, yeah. transcription regulation, and many other issues. He goes on to say, life on Earth at its most fundamental level, in its most critical components, is the product of intelligent activity. And then he goes on to say, the conclusion of intelligence design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books, not from sectarian beliefs, but from the data. Now that is a strong case to be made. Uh, by Michael Behay. Yeah, those are big. Those are big heavy hitters. Those guys are 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 one hundred percent correct in that. Um, you know, the flagellum is something that people could look up and and see, but it's it's this little motor that runs inside a cell that circles around in the cell, telling the cell, a cell, think mm -hmm. about the small, you can't see a cell by your naked eye, you know? So this little flagellum runs around in there, giving information, telling that cell what it needs to do. Now, the cell wouldn't know what to do without the flagellum, and the flagellum wouldn't have any any way to survive or, or move without the cell. So th there's an irreducible complexity there. Secondly... I wanted to point out something that helped people understand what we mean by irreducible complexity. I use this when I'm trying to describe it. Let's for say you have a wire, you form it into a U shape and put little hooks on the end, and then you have a little hook when you on one end with a flat plate on it, and you you push uh, you you have a flat board on it and you attach all of those things together and you form and make a mousetrap. A mousetrap is at its most irreducible point to be functioning as a mousetrap. If it was any less, it would be a wood block, it would be a bunch of wires, it would be a spring, it would be, you know, a flat plate uh, of steel to to put the uh, the the cheese on. So the mousetrap is at its most irreduced 
state. What in what in this world, if we are intelligent, if we as intelligent beings can design something like that as most uh, irreducible piece or, or irreducible state, what then could God, an intelligent being, do? Absolutely. So powerful statement. Yeah. What? So so here here's one: the anthropic principle. <laughs> We're throwing out big words for people today, and so, um, but these are these are really these are the arguments. These are the names. There's no real way to get around what this is. It's the anthropic principle. So what is it? So the anthrop- anthropic principle states that from its very inception, the universe was fine-tuned uh, for the emergence of human life. And, and quite frankly, there are certain things even beyond the scope of this planet, even beyond the scope of our solar system, there are certain things within the, the uh, complexities of the universe itself that have to be just so finely tuned to allow life to exist. Now, we talked about earlier about the four fundamental forces, uh, the the strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and and the gravity, gravitational force. All those have to be fine-tuned to a certain degree or life would be impossible. Life just couldn't exist. And so uh, the anthropic principle states that that from the very inception, the universe had to be just so to allow life to exist. And so there are some examples given here. So um, Hugh Ross uh, suggests even oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere. If it were 25%, fires would erupt. And if only 15%, humans would suffocate. If the gravitational this was uh, here, okay. If the gravitational force were altered by merely one part in ten to the fortieth power, that's ten followed by forty zeros, the sun would not exist, and the moon would crash into the earth or veer off into space. If the centrifugal force of planetary movement did not precisely balance the gravitational forces, nothing could be held in orbit around the sun. If the universe were expanding at a rate of one millionth, one millionth more slowly than it is, the temperature on Earth would be 10,000 degrees Celsius. Imagine that. Even the expansion of the universe has to be just so, or life would be impossible. If Jupiter were not in its current order, the Earth would be bombarded with space material. If the Earth's crust were thicker, too much oxygen would be transmitted to it to support life. If it were thinner, volcanic and tectonic activity would make life untenable. And if the rotation of the Earth took longer than 24 hours, temperatures, temperature differences between night and day would be too great for life to exist. Think about this. Two of the brightest objects in the sky are the planet Venus and the planet Mars. Now you think about this. Now, Mars could be colonized. Venus cannot. But by without special instrumentation, without special devices, human beings can't live on either planet. Mars is too close to the sun for life to exist. Mars is a lot like Earth, but it's too close to the sun. So if you go there, it's like going into an inferno. It is, it is very hostile to life. I mean, even some of the instruments have a difficult time surviving uh, with, with even some of these, uh, these explorations to Venus because it is just too hot. It's, it's, uh, if, if memory serves, I believe some places on, on the planet are just acidic. It's just not habitable. Think about Mars. Mars is a little farther from the sun. Again, remember the Goldilocks and Three Bears? Venus is too hot. Mars is too cold. Mars is just way too cold for human life. But it is more, it is more reasonable to colonize on Mars than it would be Venus because Venus... It's just, it's just like Hades there. Uh, it's just way too hot. And Mercury, as they say in New York, forget about it. It is just way too hot and too close to the sun to even have a chance. Uh, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, all these other big planets, they don't have a, a rocky core to them. That, that uh, This all gaseous planets. Uh, so, again, 
you have to have certain conditions just right for life to exist. And um, so, I mean, it, you can't just you just can't chalk this up to chance. It's more than just chance. Yeah, yeah. There's so much there, you know. Uh, um, the the gravity being moved to the fortieth power. One, just you think about that. That number is is so hard to even conceptualize in our heads, let alone be able to to see the movement of that. It'd be you know, it, and it'd be moved just a little bit to the left or the right of that, of where it's at, and we would all be gone. It's incredible. Geisler even notes here, he said that uh, former atheistic astronomer Alan Sandage came to the same result. Sandage, a former atheist, when looking at the design argument, said this, and this is his words, the world is too complicated in all of its parts to be due to chance alone. I am convinced that the existence of life on earth with all its order in each of its organisms is simply too well put together. The more one learns of biochemistry, the more unbelievable it becomes unless there is some kind of organizing principle and architect for believers. That architect being God. Yeah, yeah. Incredible when we get when we get uh, into these kind of things. These are powerful arguments, just in the just in the in the fact that you have people that can mess uh, mess around with chemistry. Just for example, you know, you got scientists messing around with chemistry. If if the oxygen wasn't right, the way it's supposed to be, they wouldn't be able to perform their experiments. If if, if the the heat and the hot and the cold was too too drastic from from being you know spinning a little slower we, we then we wouldn't be able to you know we wouldn't be able to thaw out in the morning or in the day <laughs> we've frozen yeah There's just so many things that are just too suspicious to being just right absolutely so. Let's go back to Thomas Aquinas then. Thomas Aquinas had a version of the design argument. What is that? Just wanted to hit on this uh, just just very slightly. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, he's known a lot for his cosmological arguments, but he actually gave a teleological or design argument. Many times the design argument is called a teleological, uh, teleos meaning end or goal. Uh, he gave this type of argument. And so this is actually his, uh, the fifth of the five ways. Um, this is the last of his five ways. He gave this argument something like this. Every agent acts for an end, even natural agents. Now what acts for an end manifests intelligence, but natural agents have no intelligence of their own, Therefore, they are directed to their end by some intelligence. And so uh, the, you could even use this in, in what we're talking about here. You off, it drives me crazy on nature shows where you hear people say mm -hmm. nature created or nature directed, but nature is an inanimate object. It's not a living, breathing force. Nature is just a, it's just a set of all natural things. And so you're giving, right. by doing that, you're giving, you're already implying that an intelligence of some sort exists. So if, if you go back and remember, yeah. um, go back and remember on Jurassic Park, um, Goldblum's character, uh, I believe I'm saying his name's right, he, he say, says, uh, talking about the dinosaurs, uh, they're supposed to be all females, but yet they're having babies. And, and he just says, nature has a way. Uh, or or nature gives life. Nature has a way of coming through. But how does nature do anything? If nature is just a set of all living we'll things, nature will find a way. That's right. It's, it's late. It's been a busy day. My mind ain't working right. <laughs> but nature finds a way. Um how can nature in and of itself do anything? Because nature is just a set of all the natural, of the, of the all natural world. 
those that terminology itself argues for an intelligence. So since nature is not an intelligence itself and is directed toward a certain end, Aquinas is arguing right. that that itself argues for an intelligence and that intelligence we know to be God. It's so good. And, you know, and when and think about the date of, of when Thomas Aquinas was was on on the earth. So think about that. Very intelligent man. Intelligent man. One of the one of the. Even if you don't agree with all of his perspectives, he he is one of the most intelligent theologians of all time. I mean, he is deaf. I mean, I. I Top three, I, I was it may, yeah. at least top five, but definitely I think I would even say top three. Just again, even if you don't agree with all of his perspectives, I mean, many people gave up on him. They called him the fat ox because they didn't think he was a large structured man and didn't think he would amount to anything. And come to find out, he was he did far more than anyone else in his class. <laughs> you you said a while back how many how many pages did he write? Well over ten thousand, and this is be well ahead of the advent of typewriters. He wrote it by hand, uh, by you know by candlelight yeah. and uh, researching old school my style. Hands yeah, man. <laughs> my hands cramping just thinking of that. <laughs> um. So we really don't have time to go into the objections against the design argument, design argument. But what are um, what are kind of like the heavy hitters? What are some of the stuff that that are the most uh, people use? A lot of times, people just one of the biggest ones I think that, that are out there is just is the argument. But I think Lawrence Krauss has used this, and many many other atheistic philosophers and uh, and cosmologists will say this. So well, so it'll they'll say simply. Because we exist, of course, the universe looks designed. Uh, because if it were any other way, we wouldn't be here. So they would, a lot of times they'll argue going back to a multiverse or to these, if you remember back last episode, we talked about these different wiggling brains. Uh, if uh, these, uh, B-R-A-N-E-S, these, these, these planes of existence, and if they bump into one another, it pops out of universe and or or these bubble universes that floating around and if they bump into one another they pop out another universe i mean the thing is there's no evidence for any of this uh, but they're using this as a philosophical way of of trying to find a way out they're trying to find an escape hatch to what is blindly obvious in my opinion and that is that that there is some divine intelligence out there and um so if if you go back and and say well if you have this super universe generator then eventually eventually it's going to get the circumstances just right and produce life but there's problems with that because there are situations and and I'll be honest I'm too brain tired right now to even recall to bring it to my memory but there are, there are even certain circumstances and situations right now. Uh, in the universe that showed that that even can't exist. That can't even be the case because even if there were such a super generator, uh, there would be uh, signs, uh, better signs than what we have. Um, quite, quite honestly, a universe as as ours looks just has all the telltale signs of design, and there's no evidence of a super generator. A universal generator, and even if it, if even if there were, you're still left with the same problem you are with a multiverse. Where did the generator come from? Uh, and if it's a natural system operating under natural laws as we know it, as we understand them now, uh, then it would have had to uh, have the second law of thermodynamics going on. So that means that at some point it had to have a beginning, and then you go, you're left with the whole issue of the chicken and the egg all over again. Uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, so you're not getting away from it. the The problem is, is all of these, all of these ideas, cosmological ideas, are just used as escape hatches as to what is blindly obvious, and that is that this universe 
it's designed. It looks designed. It has all the evidence of being designed. And it goes back to that whole illustration of a duck. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, chances are likely it's a duck. Uh, and then, of course, you have you know issues. Some people say you know they'll use chance. Some people say, well, given enough time, then things will come about. But you know there are just there are, there are really a lot of holes, a lot of problems in all of those arguments. If you were to go through them one by one, uh, you'd find that they just really don't hold. But that's that's really the biggest to summarize. That's really the biggest objections. Yeah. It it still always amazes me that it's the um, given enough time. Time is always um, the you could say the, the the point you know that they try to stretch, but yet we can get to a point where there's so much there, there's so much time there that it, it doesn't even it isn't even feasible, even practical. Well, and you have a problem. You even have a problem going back to uh, the Cambrian explosion, because there was a there was an epoch of time where you, you, well, you had a time frame where, according to what the fossil record shows, you have a time frame where there wasn't anything there in the fossil record, and then there's this huge explosion at one time where you have all this life coming out in an instantaneous moment. Uh, where this life just comes spring, you know, it just, it begins. And um, it, it didn't come about over time. It, it really came about at a certain point. And that really isn't what the whole argument for this long, tenuous time frame to produce certain things really, really, really says. It's not what the data says. It's not what the data suggests. Yeah. From my understanding of it, at least. So, last one here. If we're left with the options of chance, time, nature, or design, which one of these holds the greatest uh, of weight? Okay, mathematically, it's said if if you go to an exponent of anything greater than the exponent of 10, then it is mathematically impossible for chance to account for the existence of something or, or for uh, something to be about by chance alone. And it seems like if memory serves, the odds of life existing in this universe with all the conditions given, uh, it's something like 1 to 10 with 150 zeros behind it. It's just mathematically absurd to consider that chance alone could give rise to life as we know it. If if you hold that chance is is only possible with, with one to the tenth with with ten zeros behind it, and then you go one hundred and fifty zeros, it's just a mathematically impossibility, mathematical impossibility for chance to ascribe the existence of why we're here. Time we've already mentioned the problems with time. Uh, if you look at the fossil record, Cambrian explosion, life came about in one moment, and so you know if if you have a rock sitting there in a vacuum for a million years, after the million years, you're still going to have a rock in a vacuum unless something else happens. Um, you know, so time is not really all the answer to this issue. Nature, as we've mentioned, nature is an inanimate set of all natural objects. It is not a, a an intelligence. It's not a force uh, in that regard. So nature can't do anything of itself as Thomas Aquinas suggested, um, when things don't have intelligence within themselves, they must be directed by an intelligence outside of them, uh, outside of themselves, and that intelligence must be God. So, given all the options we have on the table, laying the cards out on the table, chance doesn't work, time doesn't work, nature doesn't work, so the only thing that really does is design. And design speaks strongly for a designer and that designer, that architect, that uh, intelligence, we would understand to be God. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at a building, you, you look at that building and say that building didn't just happen to pop into space and plant itself right there in the perfect space um, and have everything formed just right. It, you you know that that, build, that building had a builder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one other thing I was wanting to talk, touch on with the with nature, the design argument or the the nature argument. When we were talking about it, I, I really I it hit me, but I didn't say anything about it. But think about this: in nature, nothing uh, nothing gains. Everything is in natural. Its natural progression is to devolve, is to fall back, is to simplify, is to find its way back to a simple state. Or lose its energy, yeah. Yep, yep. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, that's the design argument, and uh, there's more There's more to come. We, we certainly do enjoy the fact that you've came here and spent the time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers at this podcast help stretch your mind and becomes a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, So drawn, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a theological reflection on the Bellator Christie podcast. This is only available on the audio uh, formats of the podcast. So now, here is the theological reflection. We're going to take Matthew 26, verse 6, on down through verse 16. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you have you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in the memory of her. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now I want to take a minute here and show a contrast between two different views of what people took in, what his disciples, the people around him, took in. One, there was a gal, Mary, who was covering his feet or pouring the oil out all over him to prepare him for his burial. She got that he had to die. She understood that theological moment, that, that moment in time where she realized He's got to go and do this. And the other, the other view was Judas stating with his actions, he's not doing what I thought he came to do. The biggest thing I wanted to point out in this is from this point on in Jesus' ministry all the way to the cross, he would have had that smell of that ointment oil all over him. It's very fragrant. And it's going to stick around for a while. 
it's oil. So from that moment on, he would have had the smell of death, of burial. As he was interacting with Caiaphas, as he was interacting with Pilate, as he was interacting with the crowds and the people, all the way through, even the Last Supper, while he was given the the Last Supper, the Passover Supper, while he was describing the cups, while he was washing the disciples' feet, he would have had that smell, the smell of death, still upon him. Something, something to consider. As we go through this, uh, this section of Holy Week, uh, going to the cross, consider how people would have viewed that at that time and what that would have meant. Very powerful. And, you know, that's something to consider. I mean, this, this, something you mentioned there, Curtis, you talked about how he had the smell of death. And this would have been probably a very sweet fragrance. And even though it was pleasing to the scent, uh, pleasing to the nostrils, it would have still had carried over that symbolism that death of that death that was arising. But in many ways, if you think about it as well, that scent really... Maybe even, maybe not necessarily um, physically, but if you think about it in a, in a perspective, in a, in a way, it was preparing him not only for death, but for resurrection. Um, and it flowed over. I mean, because didn't they say they had 100 pounds of spices that they anointed yeah. the body of Jesus with? Yep, anywhere between 75 to 100 pounds, yep. And maybe even that fragrance carried over into the resurrection. I, I don't know. I, I'd never thought about that, the scent of, of death carrying over. Well, Paul tells us that um, to, to those that, are, those that are, are seeking life, the fragrance of us, the fragrance of Christians being, uh, being or there, it, the fragrance that we create, the is a smell of welcome and a smell of, of, of coming to, but to others, it repels them. It's a smell of, a smell of death, mm. ah, a smell of rejection. Powerful. And if you think about it, the two different options there between Judas and, and, uh, the, and Mary is really telling because it seems like, you have many different individuals, many different uh, situations, scenarios where people want to avoid the cross. They want to avoid the sacrifice that Jesus did and performed. You know, with, without the sacrifice, without salvation, nothing else matters. You know, we're we're lost in our sins. Without the resurrection, you could even say that we are. It's what Paul says: we are still in our sins, and we are people most to be pitied. Yes. Well, there it is, our uh, theological moment. Uh, we just thank you for listening in and just consider the cross as you enter into the, the rest of the Holy Week.